This episode is brought to you by Marantz Model 40N, ISA's Smart Amplifier of the Year. The most musical sound simplified. Welcome back, everybody. Another Darko Audio podcast is upon us. This time it's another headphone review and joining me to lead that discussion is one Srajan Eban from Six Moons. Welcome, Srajan. Thank you, John. Welcome. Now, today we're going to be talking about the Meze 109 Pro, over-ear, open-back, I guess you'd call it a home headphone, wouldn't you? A home listening headphone? Yes. To me, it's a little bit too nice looking, especially with that exposed wood that I think I would probably not take them out on a walk. I would take them on the balcony or my backyard, but imagining wearing these in an inner city on a, on a sub, your subway or a bus, uh, I don't think so. But you could, definitely. I mean, it, you could if you had no respect for the people around you <laughs> because of the, yeah, the, yeah, the leaky noise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> but yes, but I mean, so c- can you explain to us why, I mean, you, you said that they're nice and maybe too nice to take outside. What, what, what's going on there? Well, I, uh, I have a pair of the original 99 uh, class. Uh, actually, these are the 99 Neo. Uh-huh. So that's the cheaper version of the classic. The classic had, or has, because they're still available, the the wood cups, uh-huh. and the cheaper version has like black plastic. Yeah. But the general geometry is very very similar to the new ones, the 109 Pro. Um, but the 109 Pro is scaled up in material finesse. It's it's heavier. It's bigger, and it's it's more posh. Can one say posher? Is that a word? Can yeah, I say think, more yeah. posh? Yeah. Um, we can today. We're going to say it's, it's posher. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so um, I think a lot of people that are familiar with the originals, the you know the the classics, um, they will be curious about the differences. Yes. Um, so let's start uh, by looking at the difference mechanically. So the 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 band, the headband. I think they call it manganese steel, mm-hmm. spring steel. Um, I tried to compare them in size, and it seems that perhaps the 109 is just slightly bigger on that steel spring. Mm. But if it is, it's, that is a small difference. Right. And I sort of call that the halo, because when you wear these things, this headband above your head sort of creates this halo. It makes you like a little bit of a saint. So we've got basically like a, a leather, I think it's a, a leather trimmed or a leather covered headband that sits on your head. And then the, 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 the sprung steel band above that, right? That right. Sort of That's maintains what I call the, the halo. Yeah. Right. That maintains the structure of the, the headband. Yeah. So that, the halo is pretty much the same. And that uh, retractable headband, uh, the principle is exactly the same. Uh, it looks like that on the 109, it's maybe just a little plusher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the thing that I call the wishbone, and that's that nicely machined metal element that attaches the retractable headband to the outer steel frame. Uh, on the 99 Classics, that sits uh, lower mm. on the frame, 
because the, the cups are smaller. And on the 109, it's turned around and it sits higher on the frame. Um, and uh, one thing that I really love about the originals and about the new ones is just how comfortable they are to wear and how you don't have to make any adjustments. You don't have to like slide out any sliders, find any click stops. You just put them on and you pull them down so that they cover your ears and the headband adjusts automatically. And when you take them off, it slips right back. So there is zero adjustment to be made, mm. but the headphone itself has enough. It like has a uni swivel yes. where the, the cup attaches to the frame. And that has, has just enough give up and down and front and back to conform to the head, different mm. head sizes. I also find the spring tension just right. Mm. It's neither too much nor too little. I can literally wear these four hours and I don't get any sort of fatigue from pressure. I don't get any nasty sort of burn on the top of my skull where the headband is actually touching. Mm. Uh, a difference between the 99 and the 109 is that on the 109, the, the pillows, the ear cushions are like a suede feeling velour. Mm -hmm. And on the 99 nail that I have, it's, I guess they call it like a, a vegan leather, like a synthetic leather, which mm -hmm. is smooth. The padding on the 109s is thicker. It's yep. a little plusher than on the classics. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, um, the cable entry on the 99 goes straight down. So from geometry, you can't tell which one is the left and which one is the right channel. Mm. And the 99 also does not have any kind of indicator on the headband or anywhere else for that matter that tells you which channel is which. On the 109, the cable entry is angled. Mm -hmm. So you can, just by that, you can tell since the angle is supposed to go forward, which one is the left and which one is the right channel. But beyond that, they also have this embossed L and R on the headband itself. So there's absolutely no doubt which channel is left and which channel is right. I got to say that the um, channel markings on headphones are one of my biggest bugbears when they're not easy to find. And if I have to go hunting for it, you know, I, I find that immensely irritating and I, maybe that's just me. And I, I do love it when they put it, you know, on the, on the driver cover inside the cup, because that makes it super simple. But they're sort of like these sort of etched or Im embossed or sort of, yeah, sort of low printed. I don't know what you call it, really. Like it's almost like it's stamped onto the onto the the, the leather wrap of the the lower headband. It's okay, but I guess it suits this sort of. Well, I wouldn't call this an understated aesthetic either, because it's quite still quite ostentatious in my book for a headphone. But I guess they don't want the left and right to stand out. I don't. I don't know where else you'd put it, but. Anyway, I'm just I'm just grumbling, Srijan, because if I can't find the left and right easily, I get a little bit agitated. So, yeah. Well, in fact, I, I like that they kept it very understated because I know where they are, these identifiers. So just looking at them mm. is, is child's play. And like I said, this is the second indicator. The first one is that the cable entries are angled. And only somebody not paying any attention would put the cable in and then wear them so that the cable exits face out the back. 
I mean, I've, I've used, yeah, the cable entry as a, a channel indicator on other headphones, actually headphones that we'll talk about in a, in a bit, but, um, yeah, I guess, I guess once you're used to things, you know, after a while, if you're using it for something for several months, yeah, you, yeah, you, you probably get accustomed to that. Now, more about the construction and I should preface that was uh, saying that during this review period, I did something daft. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> and, and on an aside, in Ireland, if you're trying to rent a house or a flat, the mm. website to go to is called daft.ie. Okay. So my wife and I are very familiar with being daft. Okay. But, you, were, you were extra daft. <laughs> there you go. But back to this headphone. Um, so there I am in my big listening room listening to my loudspeakers, mm. as per usual. And these headphones were sitting on the side table. And I don't know why, but I just put them on like earmuffs or like ear warmers mm -hmm. while the big system was playing. <laughs> okay. And I heard nary a difference right. with these on or with these off. And that speaks directly to just how open these are. I mean, these are open backed headphones. Mm. So the driver's front wave obviously hits our ears. And the back wave, rather than bouncing off the inside of the ear cup, is free to exit the room around us, which is why earlier you were laughing when you said, if I want to annoy people on the bus, yep. I'd wear these because you can hear all the sound at the same loudness that the listener hears, the mm. same loudness goes out the back. But they are so open that if you wear these and you listen to music over a speaker system, wearing these does not seem to distort the sound or sort of cut off the treble or sort of like huh. make the sound woolly. So mm. that's how open they are. Now, talking about looks, you said you found them slightly ostentatious. Yes, but I, I, find them, I find them actually quite understated because the gold is not this blingy sort of yellow gold that is really popular like in Qatar, for example, or mm. in India in some places, but it's sort of like a, I would call it maybe like a copperish yellow gold, but it's very, I find it rather subdued. Um, I like the look of these a lot more than the headphones we reviewed last time, which were the Mark Levinson, Mark Levinson number yeah. 5909. Yeah. I mean, I, oh. I should qualify, you know, my ostentatious comment is basically anything that's not really sort of black and utilitarian, I, I consider to be ostentatious. Oh, okay. And, I, and I, the reason I say this is because I, I love under, really, really super understated headphones because I do want to wear them outside where possible. And I don't want them to draw people's eyes at all. Like, I, I mean, the lyric I have worn outside and they're very sort of, I would call those the, the meze lyric that is a black right. understated and they do sit very nicely with this sort of, I mean, I don't know whether you know this about Berlin, but the sort of black fashion wear here is de rigueur. And so anything all black really works in this city. And yeah, I just think they fit in very well with that. But with, with the 109 Pro, you've got a wooden ear cup surround and you do have this sort of like, it's almost like a copper gold trim when mm -hmm. I look at it in certain light, right? So on, mm -hmm. I mean, you called it a wishbone and I, I call it an inverted yoke because the arms of the sort of what would be the yoke don't go downwards, they go upwards instead, right? Exactly. And, and yeah, that's sort of a, a, a gold copper finish and also where what you call the unipivot you know is fitted between the yeah, between the ear cup and the headband there's a there's a a cap there which is sort of 
gold, copper. And it, I think they look much better than the 99 classics because I, th I think obviously the bit of materials is going to be higher here. So they could spend more money on this. And I think when you try and make sort of a, a wood metal headphone and you try and do it as cheap as possible as they did with the 99 classics, there's always that risk of it just looking a bit, looking a little bit cheap because getting wood right is hard, isn't it? If you want, yeah. if you, if you don't have a lot of money to spend on it. And I think getting metal, you know, that's not sort of aluminium or steel is also pretty hard. Like if you, if you want a, you know, like a copper or a gold finish that doesn't come easy or doesn't come cheap. I don't think I could be wrong. No, I mean, you mentioning the wood, I think that deserves another comment in that this wood I find very nicely finished. It is. Yes. Yeah. It is very, very tightly grained. So it has no pores that I can see. Mm. They also didn't put like a glass lacquer on it, which I always find distracting. Like if I want to see plastic, then I buy plastic. If I want mm. to buy wood, don't put plastic on top of wood. It's my thing. Right. Uh, so I think that the the quality of the wood finishing here is really, really is, is tops. Mm. And I also find the industrial design overall, which obviously takes as the, the jumping off point, the original 99 classic in Neo, but then now just sort of refines it. I find it, I would call it organic. Right. I would call it simple and organic. And I tried to, I thought about some other headphones that have very high industrial design. And uh, for example, Dan Clark's Stealth and Expanse. Yes. I would call them slightly futuristic. Absolutely, I would, yes. They, they, they kind of got that... Um... What's his name? Is it H.R.R. Geiger who did all yeah, the, yeah. the alien stuff, right? It's yeah. kind of got the, you know, those, those dark black ribs that you would see in a spacecraft from Alien Covenant or something like that, right? Yes, absolutely. I agree with you on that one. And yeah. they also, uh, the Dan Clarks, they used this contrast stitching on the headband. Mm. It's like either bright blue or bright red. And that bit reminds me of these sort of these snazzy sort of racetrack inspired watches that have yes. these these wristbands that are perforated and then have this really high contrast stitching on them. But that obviously, the Dan Clark Stealth and Expanse, you know, they take industrial design to a high level, but futuristic. Then I was thinking about the Abyss Diana. I love and that. that is, yeah. I think those are fantastic looking. And they, to me, suggest something like a Porsche Design Lab could have authored. Have you, do you no. have a pair of those, Dianas? Do you, do you own any? Or... No, I don't have them. I know exactly what they look like, and I've tested them at a show, but no, I don't have them. But I love, I love the, the look. It's, it's, again, high industrial design, but yep. it's it taken in a very different direction. And then, obviously, for Carl's Utopia and Clear. Yes. They are also very, very detailed and really sort of designed to the T. There's something that I might call earware that Gucci would design if they knew how to. I call those ostentatious too. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's a little bit like, you know, a really upscale shopping mall and you have, yeah. you know, guys or ladies with cell phones that have, you know, diamonds on them. And that's also the headphones that go with that. And there, uh, Meze's head designer goes in a very different direction. That's that's yep. why I before called it organic. It is very mm. stylish or style, but it's not futuristic. It's not bling shopping mall. 
it's also not as understated as the uh, Abyss Diana, but I think it is a really, really attractive uh, design. Now, one thing that we haven't quite talked of yet is the driver. Mm -hmm. And before we get to that, that if we call this an organic design that is sort of reasonably simple, then we have to change tack when we talk about the, the grill cover on the driver. Right. And I find this very interesting because it reminds me of sort like an ordinary car sitting on the street and then suddenly it races past you and you did not expect it because it didn't look like it was a fast car. And then it pulls over and the guy pops the hood and underneath this drab looking exterior, you see an engine on the inside that is all chromed and it has, you know, red anodized trim bits <laughs> and it has like colored spark plugs. Hmm. And that's what this reminds me of, because you don't see it when you wear it. The only one that knows that these incredibly filigreed, beautifully designed grill covers are there is the wearer. It's sort of like a pride of ownership thing that is not blingy, because nobody else will ever see it. But the grills on these are incredibly fine. I don't even know how you can work metal that fine unless maybe, I don't know, maybe it's laser cut or maybe it's acid etched or something. But I mean... Hmm. I don't even really want to press on it because it is that filigree that I don't know how strong it is. It looks beautiful, well, it, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It is beautiful. So now we should briefly talk about what's behind that grill. And for that, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to go to Meta's own website and take a look at the driver so I can describe what it looks like. So it's 50 mil in diameter, mm. and it is like a slightly convex like a shallow dome in the middle and that apparently is a combination of cellulose with carbon fibers like actual fibers that sort of look like stems of grass that are embedded in the sort of grayish white cellulose material mm -hmm. and that takes up about two-thirds of the driver in the center and then there is a rim around it like a molding that sort of goes up by quite a steep angle and that is uh a polymer coated with a very thin layer of vapor-deposited beryllium. And on top of that beryllium, you see these radial slashes, and they remind me of like a ScanSpeak Revelator midwoofer that has uh, these yes, sort of slashes yes. in the paper. Yep. There's a lot more of those slashes in this one here. Hmm. And then on the outside of that, they call it a torus, which is about one quarter to maybe one third of the entire diaphragm. There is a metal ring around it that they call, let's see what it's made out of. Um, they call it a copper zinc alloy stabilizer ring hmm. that apparently absorbs vibrations. And that whole package sits then in an aluminum machined driver basket. So this is quite, uh, I guess you would call this a hybrid driver because it has soft elements, the, the cellulose, yes, yeah. the carbon fiber. And then you have this this polymer ring coated with beryllium. Beryllium obviously would be a very, very hard material and it's a metal. So it's sort of like a half paperish, half metalish type hybrid affair. Mm. Um, and I believe, if I'm looking at this correctly, yes, that the driver itself is angled inside the cup which is not unusual, but in the olden days, I think before they thought of it, 
the drivers were always sort of facing the ear sort of yes. head on. Yeah. And nowadays, designers are aware that the ear canal doesn't just really go in head on, but it's angled. And so they angle the drivers in such a way that they sort of look head on at the way that your ear canal actually goes inside your head. Yeah, so Bowers these, and Wilkins do it, and Falcal do that as well. Yeah, so, so yeah. these have that as well. Hmm. And then um, the last thing that we should mention is that you get two kinds of cables come with hmm. one one meter, one three meter, both terminated in three point five mil on the amplifier side, so made for mobile. Mm-hmm. And then there is a 6.3 mil adapter plug for like quarter inch plugs on stationary head fire. And the jacketing on these is sort of like smooth plastic, um, which to be honest, I like just a little bit less than the more fabric feeling cable that comes with my classics. But that's just a tactile thing. These are a little thicker, but whenever I feel headphone cable, that is just sort of sheathed in smooth black plastic, like a throwaway power cord. To me, that always sort of telegraphs cheap. And I know mm. that's just a silly, you know, mental reflex on my part, but that's just what comes up. I prefer a cloth cover, like a woven type of sheath. Mm. And the, the plugs on the headphone side, they seem to be standard you know, standard 3.5 mil as well. So it should be very, very easy for those people who love to roll cables to get an aftermarket custom cable made. This is not like a proprietary termination. Like, for example, with the finals that I have, they need a very, very long 3.5 mil plug, and then they have a locking mechanism Yes, yeah. that you don't need for them to play, but it's nice to engage it. With this, Anyone that has like a favorite supplier of aftermarket headphone cables can very easily order one. Yeah, and uh, that's sort of all I have, I guess, on the on the material side of things. Should we mention that this this entire headphone, as far as I'm aware, it's all designed and made in Romania? Well, we should definitely mention that, right? Because even the driver, because the driver is unbelievably intricate and sophisticated yes. in its build, right? And I yes. look at that and I think, who the hell is making that in Romania? That's amazing. And I think this also goes back to the opening, you know, when I sort of name dropped some of the maybe more established headphone firms, like Focal, for example, mm-hmm. from whom you would expect really ace industrial design and the mm-hmm. ability to fit and finish to like a very high level. You don't necessarily expect this from a smaller, newer sort of boutique firm out of Romania. But I would have to say that for 699 euros, I find absolutely nothing wrong with the fit and finish on these. In fact, I think the fit and finish and the overall design and the comfort level are really tops. And here I want to hand the baton over to you for a second because mm. a while back you did a, um, a poll on, with your YouTube audience and you asked them what were their primary deciders when they were shopping for headphones. It was actually, um, I think the question was putting sound quality aside, what other, what, what's the most important factor for you when, when choosing a, a noise-canceling Bluetooth headphone? Because I did put um, noise cancelling in that list. Um, I did put, I 
couple of other things. But I know why you're mentioning this, because comfort was by far and away the winner. People really want a comfortable headphone, no matter what they're buying. More, They want it to be more comfortable than it, it say, cancels noise effectively. And I would agree with that personally. And I think these 109 Pro are some of the most comfortable headphones I've ever worn. Certainly beneath, yeah, beneath a thousand euros. Maybe the Audio Quest Nighthawk and Night Owl might rival them, but I haven't worn those for quite some time. Um, the 99 Classics were also very easy to wear for a long time, but these, you know, it, it's amazing. I mean, we've we've spoken a lot about build quality and the driver and all the ingredients that go in there, and I'm still. So I won't say astonished, but I am surprised that, that Meze have managed to pull all of this together and for us not to find any real niggle for 700 euros. Because usually there is a niggle, right? There's, there's usually some kind of gotcha somewhere. Well, I think there is anyway. And I, I certainly can't find that from a comfort point of view. In fact, I used these a lot last week when I was editing videos. I spent an entire day editing a video, like 12 hours in the chair, I had these on the entire day and they didn't bug me once. And I can't think of, I couldn't, I couldn't do that with a Focal. I couldn't do that with, I'm looking around the room. I've got a pair of Sennheiser Drop HD 6XX, which are extremely comfortable, but they would probably start to put that pressure on the, on the top of the head a little bit. Yeah. A little bit after maybe three or four hours, I've got a pair of well, they're now called Dan Clark, but it's when they were Mr. Speaker's Eon Flow headphones. They're also supremely comfortable. They're a bit like, you know, they have the 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 halo steel band and then the, the leather band that sits on your head. They're also very, very comfortable. But I think the side clamping force on those is a bit stronger. And the side clamping force on the Meze, I think is actually... It's it's on the looser side, and if this was, a, this was a portable headphone designed to go outdoors, I might grumble about that. But I'm not moving very much in the, in the chair when I'm editing a video or listening to music, so it, it's quite nice that it's a bit loose. It's certainly looser than the little Sony's that I'm wearing right now. So it does feel like they do sort of cup the ears, but they don't clasp the ears. Which I don't know whether you, I mean our head shapes and sizes are different, Rajan. So I don't know whether this is what you how you feel about this, but I. I find them just right. And again, mm. like you said, they are some of the most comfortable headphones that I've ever tried. Mm. And I think maybe that goes back to uh, Antonio Meze, the, the lead designer at Meze, not being, not coming from being an audiophile first on. He first comes from an industrial design perspective. Yes. So comfort was very high on this list for designing something that is utilitarian. It's like designing a chair and then it's uncomfortable. That'd mm -hmm. be a big no-no. The first right. thing that you're looking for is comfort and that is universally be, I mean, universally comfortable. So it, it probably has to have some adjustments relative mm -hmm. to like height and all of that. That's why I think uh, that he takes the subject of comfort really, really uh, uh, strongly. And as an industrial designer who's obviously really good, it doesn't seem like any little detail sort of slips his attention. Like, I don't think he would sign his name underneath something until really every T had been crossed and every I had been dotted. That's certainly how I feel about these. Hmm. I mean, he certainly um, does, does seem to be fairly obsessive with, with details. And I, actually, I think a big contributing factor to the comfort is the unipivot mechanism. 
I, I really, because I'm looking around, I'm looking at the Sennheiser, I'm looking at the Mr. Speakers or Dan Clark, and they're not Unipivot. They're, I mean, I know the, the, the final DH, sorry, D8000 that you're wearing right now, um, they're, they are Unipivot, right? But right. they are, but they're, that's a three grand headphone. Or it is, and, and it's not as comfortable. It right. is slightly heavier. It's much heavier. And, <laughs> and I do get this sort of top of the skull, this contact patch irritation after, well, you and I have been at it for maybe minutes. half an hour now, yep. and I'm already yep. starting to feel it. It's not irritating me yet, but it's like it's starting. I'm starting to be aware of it. Whereas mm. with the Meze, I never was. Like you said, you, you could edit a whole day and not take them off because you are uncomfortable. Also, interestingly, and this is one, I, I must mention this because I, I made a mental note to remember this, is that you know when you sometimes, after you've been wearing a pair of headphones for a long time, and you take them off and you go, ah, you exhale, a bit like when you're sitting down because you, 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 you're expressing a sense of relief, right? Because you're finally taking them off. I didn't feel that with them, is they? I'm like, yeah, yeah, just taking them off. And that's that. A bit like, you know, the transparency with you playing your big system and hearing all the way through and there not being a difference between them being on and off, you know. And I yeah. don't think there's, there's a huge difference between not wearing headphones and then wearing the 109 Pro. I mean, of course you're aware they're there, but it's not, they don't, they don't, they don't overstay their welcome. Not at all. And there's one last thing I just want to mention before I forget it. And that is that normally, and I think that goes back to like some biodynamics that I had. Hmm. I, I'm not fond of velour ear cushions because I find that they, their little fine hair gets, it absorbs like skin grease mm -hmm. and, it, and, and dust. Mm -hmm. And then you have to like be there with like a little suede brush or somehow try to get all of that stuff out could even mm. be like you know old skin cells that are in there and so when i first learned that these meze went away from the smooth sort of vegan synthetic leather to like a a textured plush design i said oh i'm gonna hate that but as it turns out this seems to have like an incredibly fine what do you call it tuft Tuft is exactly the right word. And I, okay. I would never have thought of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is <laughs> they tough. have a yeah. very, very fine tuft. So for some reason, and I've been wearing this a lot, hmm. they sort of absorb very, very little dirt. And if and when there is a little flag, it comes out real easy. I don't need a brush or anything. I just take my finger and flick it off. And oh, so yeah. they, they, look, they look like new. Hmm. And I, now I'm talking specifically about the pillows, you know. Yeah, the ear pads, and I've been wearing them on a daily basis ever since I got here. And that is very, very different also to the the Sennheiser HD eight hundred, which now go oh I don't know ten years back or more. Mm. They start looking like they had soaked up grease after a while. I mean, they looked really cheap for being an expensive headphone, mm. and I should have bought new pads. But then I transitioned to planar magnetic headphones, and I never did. So there again, I must say that my initial skepticism about that choice, you know, Antonio Meze proved me wrong once again. I'm so, willing, to, willing to bet that Antonio Meze scoured, let's say, half of Europe to find the right supplier with the right sort of microfiber, tough. right? The right tuft. <laughs> yeah, like just the right, just the exact right material 
to cover those pads. He seems like that kind of guy. He's not going to be just all, we'll just take that one because it's the right price and we can do it and we can make it work. He's like, no, it needs to be this particular kind, right? I think I think that's yeah. really because you know that these it's very clear that these headphones were not designed by committee or a board Definitely. of people, right? It's it's one guy's vision. And I mean on that subject as well, if we are looking at the the cable entries, they are sleeved in like uh, a copper gold colored metal sleeve rather than just having a bore in the wood hmm. that then goes into the plug. Now, this is pure extravagance. It's yes. not mechanically necessary, but it sort of adds an element of refinement. It's sort of like uh, a nice detail that just sort of telegraphs somebody really g gave this a thing. And he mm -hmm. went the extra mile because this is a, a somewhat complex part that I'm sure to machine. You know, it's, it's a barrel, a thin walled barrel that is then cut at an angle so that it fits flush into this curved wood shell. Yeah, and, and also the, um, the spider structure that forms the outside of the ear cup. Mm -hmm. sort of, I mean, I don't know how, how that would be made. Would that be, would that be milled? out of a solid block I, I just it's i mean looks like it's definitely a subtractive process because i can't see any sort of joins on the spines where they join the center so it must possibly be. 3d printed i'm not sure oh yeah it could be yeah but it i mean it looks nice and Better. i would i would never if, if it is 3d printed i would never peg that as 3d printed so i'm not yeah. saying it is i honestly don't no, know no. But, it, no, but it is it looks monolithic because you do not see a seam Mm -hmm. And if it's molded, then it's molded super cleanly because you don't see any sort of burrs or any attempts to remove any burrs. Mm. And so that's the difference between this $699 Meze and then the top ones like the Empyrean, where Antonio goes even further with the filigreed work on the, the open backs because they're incredibly elaborate. And I believe that those were like laser cut. Yes. Yeah, this I mean, is just as filigreed, but it's not as show-offy because I like that. Uh, I like that sort of. Me too. It's yeah. it's black and it's yeah, uh, it's understated. Like it. You have to give it a really close look to just see how fine the meshes. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether he produces um, a version of this headphone with instead of having the wood finish on the on the wrap of the the ear cup, and instead of having sort of copper gold uh, wishbone and uni pivot. Uh, plug, whether he'll, he can make an all black edition, because I think personally I would like that more. Like ah. if everything was black. I'm not saying I don't like this. I, I really do. And to be honest, when it's an indoor headphone for listening at home, the outward aesthetic of the headphone, I don't, I don't care anywhere near as much as comfort. Comfort, comfort factor importance for me is like a nine out of ten. And how they look is like a one out of 10. I'm just being nitpicky because we're just chewing the fat here, you know? So, right. so should we talk about sound? Is, is that the next step, Srajan? On your. Does one do that these days? <laughs> well, apparently. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then we should. I think it's really convenient that the last headphone review we did hmm. was on the Mark Levinson, mm -hmm. which the brand is obviously owned by Harman. Mm hmm. And Harman obviously is the originator or the owner of the so-called Harman curve. Mm -hmm. 
and, and here we should remind our listeners that the Harman curve is not the be all and end all of headphone tuning. It's just something that the research done by Harman has shown is the response curve that the most people prefer or like. Yes. So the upshot seems to be that if you want a sort of quote unquote guarantee of designing a headphone whose sound people will like, that if you use the Harman curve, you stand a pretty good chance. That's how I, that's how sort of I read the importance of it. Yes. But the reason I'm bringing it up is that we, we can use the Harman curve, or I should say my memory of the sound of the Mark Levinson mm. to contrast the Harman curve to the methods and how the methods diverge because they do diverge. Definitely. So for those people who find the Harman curve to be neutral or linear. I think that's the idea, isn't it? People do tend to find the Harman curve to be um, unobtrusive, you know, from top to bottom, from 20 to 20. And, you know, where nothing really so sticks out, nothing's accentuated or, or dips, so nothing falls away. I mean, it's generally flat, but not necessarily flat as in, I think you described it with in the Mark Levinson podcast this way, like it could be a descending flat, slowly descending from the base towards the treble. And I think, isn't that the way the Harman curve generally goes? It's not, you know, it doesn't leave at the same height as it arrives at the other side, just the left to right. It's sort of, it starts higher and ends a bit lower. Is that right? I think that's right. I believe so. But in any event, if I take my memory of the Mark Levinson's, which in our podcast review, we, I think, both agreed on describing as subjectively linear or neutral. Yes. Whilst admitting that nobody really knows what neutral is. But Definitely, yes. Okay. So that out of the way, these are not neutral. Or no, they're not. <laughs> they do not conform to the Harman curve. Now, how and where do they diverge? I'm going to cheat again because I, this I wrote down to make sure I get it, I get it right. Hmm. So with these, I heard the mid and the upper bass, so roughly 80 to 200 hertz, as relatively elevated versus the sub bass. So Is either it, we say yeah. that, either we say that, or we say the inverse, and we say that the sub bass below 40 hertz, like the fourth octave, mm. was slightly, I wouldn't say weak, but slightly down relative to the mid and the upper bass. Uh I would, I would prefer, well, I think if I had to go in one direction there, I would say that the, the mid sort of upper bass, you know, where, yeah, where you hear a bass guitar generally play, right? It, I, I found that there's a bit of a lift there to give them sort of that woody richness mm -hmm. that I, I think I actually tend to hear on the 99 classics as well. So whether this is something that Antonio Meze favors from dynamic driver designs, because obviously the Elite and the Empyrean are, uh, the, the, well, they're sort of kind of like that, that two-panel planar magnetic, aren't they, where they've got mm -hmm. the two-piece, two, two if you like. Yeah, it's a thin film diaphragm rather yeah. than uh, a dynamic. Right. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I, I think I would, if somebody asked me straight out, I'd be like, yeah, they've got a little bit of a lift in the sort of mid to upper bass. Yeah. But not too much that it's, no. it's obnoxious or offensive, right? Which just also means that the sub-bass, the infra bass, as, as, as some people refer to it, mm. is slightly down by comparison. Mm -hmm. 
And then I would say that the uh, two to three kilohertz presence region and the treble are slightly down, but then the brilliance region and the treble, so 10 kilohertz and up, is up again. Mm. So the way that this combines is that the voicing is warmish because of the lift in the mid and the upper bass, yeah. but it's not dull. No. Because sometimes a warm sound can feel a little fuzzy and a little dull. It's sort of, it's lacking sheen. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, it's an exciting sound because of that turned up upper treble, but it's not exhausting. Because first of all, the treble isn't turned up too much. And mm -hmm. second of all, where it's turned up, it's above the annoyance region. And what I mean by the annoyance region is the three to six kilohertz region sometimes even seven kilohertz, where for my taste, the original Sennheiser HD 800 really went overboard. I found those too forward, too bright, too energetic, and fatiguing over the long term. Now, if Antonio or whoever on the team was responsible for the voicing, if he had not built in this sort of lift at the very top, then I would say there would be a chance that this headphone, because of the warmish bottom end, would sound a little dull. It would sound like a like a thick gravy looks. Yeah, right. But it, it just it, but there's a, there's a nice sheen up top, isn't it? The kind it of it's uh, a nice sheen on the top, which yeah. I found never got exhausting. It never got annoying, uh, and it also made me sort of reflect on having started my headphone career, even as a as just a consumer, just as a hobbyist with dynamic headphones, because back in those days. At least I didn't know about any alternative. Mm. But I started out with Dynamics, and then I drifted over into the planar magnetic camp. And it started with Odyssey. And then later on, there were the Mr. Speaker rebuilds of the, the Fostex. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then came the Oppo. And uh, then came uh, the, the Russian one. What are they called again? Kenaton. And then obviously the Hi-Fi Mans, which I still have to this day. And then came the final or final from Japan that I'm wearing right now. And these final, the ones that you have as well, they're called mm -hmm. the D8000. Those are my customary desktop headphones. That's what mm -hmm. I listen to when I'm writing in. And now for the first time in a long time on the desktop, I was wearing Dynamics, a dynamic right. headphone, these messages. And what I heard right away, and then when I switched back and forth, confirmed is that these dynamics have a, a better or a more distinct, more energetic, more brilliant or lit up treble than the planar magnetics. And I would also say that holds true against the Odyssey. Maybe not to the same extent to my hi-fi mans, but mm. my hi-fi mans are like 6,000 euros, so they're just in a completely different category. So yes. <laughs> that doesn't really count. But so that's my take on the voicing. So if we sort of say, if we say that the middle is reasonably flat, then we would say that it goes up uh, in the upper bass mm. and the mid bass, and it falls down again in the, in the bottom octave. Then we would say that when we come to the presence region where the human voice is centered where like mm. a baby's cry is centered so yes. the mom is really attentive to it yeah it just dips down just a little bit and then at the top it goes up again 
And so that's what that's why I would not call this a quote unquote neutral or linear voicing. Well, then it wouldn't be called a voicing. Then it would just be called, I guess, tuning. Because voicing implies that you change something deliberately. And whoever voiced these or, or, or is responsible for the response, I think, had a very particular effect in mind. Mm. And that's why, again, I'm going to read this again because I was trying to find just the right words. That's why this voicing to me is warm, but not dull. And it's exciting, but not exhausting. Yes. How does that match or diverge from your impressions? So I pulled out the Mr. Speaker's Eon Flow. They're a planar magnetic headphone. They sell, sorry, they sold for. I mean, they've been superseded by the, what are they called? Is it the Flow 2? I, but I only have a closed back version of that. I don't have an open back. This is the open back version, the original that I reviewed about four years ago. And I, I really like it. And I, I was playing it again this afternoon. I still think it's great, but it's definitely a darker headphone. I think it's closer to Harman Target than the Meze. Um, it doesn't it doesn't have that sort of woody richness in the upper bass, but it doesn't have the brilliance up top either. And I think if I had an amplifier that I would describe as, say, bright or... I was actually using the um, the Mola Mola Tambaki, which I think is already fairly sparkly in the top. Like it has a lot... I'm not saying it's bright. I'm def, It's not bright. It's just It just really brings life or brings music to life. It really pulls the life out of music, which I love. And I think, I mean, I really tried to push the 109 Pro to a point where it would get annoying, but it didn't. I mean, I was playing a track by Boards of Canada called Day Van Cowboy. Listeners can look this up if they want to. And it's got this, it's, it starts with a fairly, well, what would be a grating sound if you had a grating sounding system, but it doesn't, it doesn't go there. It threatens to go there because it really does make you sort of lean into it because it is exciting, but you never kind of like pull back you know, or, or wince or kind of go, oh, no, that's too much. And I, I love that. And I was, I think also with, um, I was playing this really old, very cheesy sounding 90s electronica cut called, was it called Water Drums by an outfit called Union Jack? I think this must be like a Euro, I think they were like a Euro trance outfit for a while, but they made this very ambient sounding piece. And it is, as the title suggests, it's drums made out of water splashes. It's sampled, right? And those those water splashes sounded so good under the mezzes because it really extracted all the surface texture out of that water sound. Whereas it was a little bit more subdued with the Mr. Speakers, also with the Sennheiser HD 6XX as well, because they do sound a little bit sort of rolled off and warm and I mean, I also want to add this because we were talking a lot about build quality. The HD 6XX sell for like $280 now, and I think they look like a joke next to the build quality of the Meze. I mean, they're just cheap, plasticky. There's just enough to hold them together and for them not to fun. They're purely functional. I do like the looks, but they don't have the unipivot. And they have the suede that you, you, know, you suggest might get dirty quickly on the pads. Um, the Dan Clark Mr. Speaker's pads are. I guess they're either a vegan leather or a leather. I'm not quite sure which. I, I still rate those Dan Clark very highly, and I still would pull them out and use them. Um, and I hadn't done for a long time. I, I did. I pulled them out for this review because they're the same ish price as the the 109 Pro. You know, like 800 bucks ish. I really rate them, but but what the big difference from for me between the the Clark and the Meze is that. The Meze have more dynamic attack. They really come at you more. 
and especially the microdynamics up top. You know, you kind of get all those sort of flickering sounds. They just they yeah burst into life and then fall away again. The Clark is sort of like a darker chocolatey sound where again that sounds a little bit more subdued. But I like dynamic sounding speakers. I like dynamic sounding headphones. Probably that's probably my favorite quality in in most probably in all of audio, which is why I like Klipsch and Zoo and things like that. And why I like the Focal Stellia close back headphone, because that is just, that really comes at you. That's super exciting. It's a little bit tiring, actually, if I'm honest, for, for several hours. You know, but I'm on about like an all-day listening session. Whereas I think the the Meze is probably a little bit, bit milder in that respect, and therefore it's probably better judged because it's not trying to impress you at the store. You know what I mean? Like those, you know, those products are really kind of sound tantalizing in the store. You're like, wow, this is amazing. I'm buying this. And then you get it home. And then after three weeks, you just can't listen to it for too long because it's just, it's too much of a good thing. And I can't, again, like the, the 109 pro, I do, I do think, and we've spoken, we've spoken a lot about the top end brilliance. I wish it was a little bit further back I, if I'm being really nitpicky, but it is when I use the shit Jotunheim too as my sort of DAC headphone amp. That's mm. that's a bit more hooded and darker than the Tambaki. The Tambaki is a freak, really, and the headphone socket is on the back. I think the headphone connectivity on that is... I'm not going to say it's an afterthought, but it's an add-on. I don't think that, that that DAC was built to be a DAC and a headphone amp. It's like, oh, we can put a headphone amp on the back, and that would be nice for some people, and it is. But as a DAC headphone amp, I'm going off track here, but a DAC headphone amp, I think the Bartok is a better solution because it isn't so brilliant in the top. And I think that brilliance from your sort of amplifier slash DAC is it's more noticeable and has the potential to become more annoying behind headphones than it does behind speakers, probably because the, the transducers are closer to our ears. I don't know. So I think I actually prefer the 109 Pro with the shit more than I prefer it with the Tambaki because mm. the Tambaki is more lit up in the top. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's more illuminated. So. Well, here we might, we might throw in that you are 50 and I'm 60. Mm. And so we are talking from the perspective of people who, even though they listen to music and write about music for a living, that we have lost some high frequency hearing relative to when we were 18. Yes, And so we can't really with any authority predict how somebody that is in their 20s would respond to these relative to their high-frequency balance. Right. All I can say is that, probably very much unlike you when it comes to musical taste, I like, <laughs> I like a lot of uh, Arabian pop music. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that uh, in the Middle East, they treat a string orchestra, just like rock treats electric guitars. They're mm. like a staple ingredient. And in Western music, it's not. In mm. Western music, you have to go to like either classical or you go to uh, modern soundtracks that mm. will employ an orchestra or maybe just even a string ensemble, a string quartet. But mm. otherwise, you don't really see violence in pop music unless somebody sort of throws them in there as a little sort of accent. But it's not a given. Well, anyways, I love the sound of what we call mass strings. Mm -hmm. Mass strings mean that like six, sometimes maybe 10 or 12 violins all play the same tone that's mm -hmm. called unison. They play it in unison. 
And of course, being humans, it can't possibly be perfect, meaning that they can't all be on perfect pitch. They can't always change from one note to the next at exactly the same time. So there's sort of just a little bit of imprecision in there. And strings, like violins, obviously, like a guitar, constitute a wooden body. It's called a tone wood body. It's a very mm. special kind of wood. And then steel strings. And yes, guitars also come with nylon strings, but violins do not. So we have a metallic element, and we have a wooden element. The metallic element is the one that, that gets struck picked or bowed first. Mm -hmm. And the moment that that string starts to vibrate, it translates those vibrations into the wooden body. And that wooden body responds with a resonance. Mm -hmm. And that's why a small violin can sound rather loud in a pretty big room. The instrument is small, but it can sound loud and room filling. And that's because it's not just a metal string but it's a metal string attached to a wooden resonator, and that resonator makes the sound bigger. So when we come to the, the meze, which also happened to be made out of a wooden cup, and they're made out of metal too, we, when, when we are listening to mass strings, we're looking for both the metal element, like being able to hear the leading edge, the attack mm. on metal, and then how that metal immediately sort of transforms or gets added to a woody resonance. Mm -hmm. Now, if the woody resonance is dominant, then the strings sound dull. And they, they, they also tend to smear a little bit. Like mm -hmm. you don't hear, mm. maybe the best way to describe it is to think of, of water, uh, wind on the water. So there's lots of little ripples and then sunlight shining directly on the water. So you see all of those little ripples and the refractions of the sunlight. You see that there's that the, the surface is agitated. Mm -hmm. And so if a headphone or a speaker or an amplifier is too dull and you listen to mass strings, then you don't hear that agitation of the metal on top. You just hear the woody element. Mm. If the metal is too strong, then suddenly the sound changes and it gets a little strident and especially as the violins go into their higher registers, mm. like above higher than a human voice can sing, like quite high, it gets sort of hot and it gets um, too incisive. Mm. So trying to find the right balance between those two elements, the metal and the wood, I find that quite hard. And personally, if I had to choose between one of the two arrows, I would actually favor a little bit more metal than wood because I like that sort of excitement. I like mm -hmm. the, the, the jump factor of the transient sort of shooting out like long grass stands taller than the rest. You know, the, 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 the transients, the dynamics, they, they have jump factor. Mm -hmm. And like you, with Semente, I never found that that element was overdone. No. Now, if I was a lot younger, I can't say whether maybe... I would find that it sort of crosses that line every once in a while, especially if I put on something where sort of mass violence are close mic and their mic actually a little bit too hot. And then if the headphone sort of hones in on that quality more than it should, then the violence would sound sort of a little screechy. Hmm. Well, I never got to that point with these. And I tried out a lot of music that had mass violence 
on them, including music that is not that well recorded, where the violins don't really sound as good as they could. So I think that whoever voiced these or tuned them really sort of found the right balance. And yes, it is not mm, neutral, but I think that's the appeal. This is not a headphone that people would call like a monitor class headphone, where monitor means like a recording monitor, where mm. you can you can master a recording over headphones rather than you know location monitors. That's not that's not what this is. It's, so it's also not a tool device. It's not something that you use to measure something else with. I think this is very craftily voiced to be to make music listening fun. Yes, and now I think. A lot of listeners will probably want to know how this compares to the classic or the neo. I believe that the neo is or was two ninety nine. Yep. And then the classic with the wooden cups goes up to what three sixty nine. Yeah, somewhere something like that. Three fifty something. Yeah, in that ballpark. Yeah. So let's just say, for argument's sake, half price. Yes. And then a little bit less than half. So I don't have the wooden cup classics. I have the neos. Well. The nails are bassy. They're bass heavy. Mm. They were actually airing on the side of too much wood, which means that by comparison, they get a little wooly. Yes. Which I think is fair considering the price that they are selling for, the likelihood, because they are lighter and cheaper, that they will be used with mobile kit, mm. which these days would mean probably a smartphone as a as a playback device, um, and the likelihood that that sound would air on the side of being a little thin and lean, and maybe even just a little bit sort of edgy. And the voicing there tones all of that down. But when you compare the 99s to the 109s, everything sort of shrinks. The resolution goes down, the, the, the energy dulls down a little bit, everything gets a little smaller, warmer, fuzzier, a little blurrier. Yes. And I would say that, you know, there's this saying of the law of diminishing returns, and when you spend twice the money, you can't expect to get double the sound. Well, when I look at the bill quality, the perceived value, just by looking at the, the more luxury materials, and then I throw the sound in there, I would say maybe not quite double, but significant significantly enough better hmm. to where I would not say that the uh, law of diminishing return kicks in with the classics and that anything after that sort of the curve really starts to flatten out. I think that the curve still is quite steep between the classics and the 109s. This is a headphone that is twice the money and it is significantly better enough to warrant the extra outlay if one can afford it. It's it's a more high resolution headphone that I've tried on an iFi IDSD Pro signature, which mm -hmm. is iFi sort of statement DAC slash headphone amplifier in one box. So mm -hmm. we are talking about 30, 3,300 euros for the box. Mm -hmm. I've listened to this on a Cos Engineering H1, which is a DAC slash headphone amplifier, about 2,500 euros. And I've listened to it on my flagship headphone amp, which is from a Chinese company called Sen Grand. The model is called the Silver Fox. 
And that sells for, oh boy, more than 5K. Mm. So sort of high-end stuff. Mm. And I never found that the 109s sort of let me down or were the sort of the weak link. No, I found they actually scaled up really nicely. That as I improved the, the quality of my amplifier, these kept improving. They didn't mm. sort of just refuse to scale up. So even though these are voice, even though these are tuned to be a fun headphone, they're not as bassy, they're not as thick, uh, they're not as warm and soft and fuzzy. Um, so it's sort of the next level up, as it should be. And that's also why I find that the, that the chosen price seems to be fair. Like Antonio is only doubling the price, he's not mm. tripling it. And somewhere I either read or maybe I heard him speak about it in a podcast or a YouTube video, how I don't now remember how many years the classic goes back, but it's on on it's been on constant sale ever since it was introduced, except with the pandemic and Brexit and the Ukraine and part shortages and inflation and everything, the profit that the company actually makes on these classics has really shrunk mm. like it doesn't sound like if that's all they had for dynamic headphones it wouldn't be a viable business it's not like they're giving them away but you know i they must have 15 employees or more when you go to their site you see all kinds of names so and i think some people when they first saw the announcement for the 109 and then they saw the price there was like immediate like throwing up of arms and oh my god he's you know, just doubled the price on us, what a ripoff. I actually don't find that at all. If I look at what 700 euros these days buys in headphones in the competition, I find it's very fairly priced. And like I said, performance-wise, I think there's sufficient of a step up. We're going from 369 or 29 for the classic to these. Is, it seems logical. It seems mm. fair. What's your take on that? Well, I want to touch on a few things you've just said. The, f the first one is, is the fun word, the F word. Um, you know, that word gets bandied about quite a lot in the head five space. Something's either neutral or it's fun, right? Now that implies this sort of what I call a false dichotomy because there aren't just two states of being for headphones or anything really. And we need to qualify the sort of fun factor because it's quite subtle here, I think. There's that little lift in the mid bass, little lift at the top. It's not v-shaped or u-shaped or anything like that whereas i would say the 99 classics is much more sort of elevated as you said in the bass it's much more sort of a v-shaped headphone um designed to be like yeah a, a real raging fun headphone whereas i think the, the 109 pro is a much more mature sounding product it doesn't need to be v-shaped it just needs a little bit of a tickle here a bit of a lift there and then you've got that accentuation which yeah you could call it fun but I would call it maybe mildly amusing <laughs> rather than just, <laughs> right? Just a, just a I can just I can just see this excerpted <laughs> yeah, the on their quote. website. Paul quote would be like just mildly amusing. Two words, yes. mildly amusing, yeah. John Darko <laughs> review. <laughs> I think the but other- no, I, get, I get where you're coming from. I think it's important that when we use a word like fun, especially if, as you say, it's a little bit overused, we have to sort of qualify what we mean by it. And then we also yes. have to sort of put the doses on this. Like, what's the magnitude of this fun factor? Is it overdone or is it really overt, like it is with the classics? Or is it sort of just a, a mild, 
a little accent, a little sort of tinge. It's a, it's definitely for me. It's a tinge, and it's a really tasteful tinge. There we are. There's a Paul quote. Tasteful, tastefully tinged. Um, I also want to touch on the the sort of partnering gear aspect because you're right. The Nine Side Classics sound the same pretty much with any sort of headphone amp DAC. But what I love about, and this is, I think this is true of all of Meze's products, is that they they don't need a lot of juice to get going. So with the Dan Clark Eon Flow and the Sennheiser HD 6XX drop version, I can't run those from a smartphone dongle, but I can definitely run the 109 Pro as I can the 99 Classics and all of Dan, all of um, Antonio Meze's headphones. I can run from a phone. Now, the interesting thing about the the ten dollar dongle that Apple make for their for the iPhone, I think it sounds fine, but it's a little bit dull in the top. And I think for me, that actually works really nicely with that sort of sort of mildly elevated. Well, I don't say elevated treble. What did I say before? Mildly amusing sort of treble, or, or you know, just there's a bit of sizzle there, but it just keeps the lid on the sizzle. And I think. As I said before, with the Jotunheim 2, which is a five six hundred dollar DAC slash headphone amplifier, that's that's probably a good fit as well. But it has way more power than these things need. I mean, you could run run them from a Dragonfly, from a, a MacBook uh, Pro. The newer versions have slightly better headphone sockets, although I don't think they're as good as you know dongle DACs and things like that. Um, so yeah, the power factor I think is for me it's an important part of a buying decision. Like, mm -hmm. can I run this from my phone? Because some people might you because they come with a carry case, right? And mm -hmm. if you if you're lucky enough to have your own office at work, right? So you're not in a shared space, you're not in cubicle hell, you're not in open plan hell as well. But if you've got your own sort of nice office with a door, you might take them there with the carry case, plug them into a dongle DAC, attach it to your laptop or your phone, and you're off to the races, no problem. You don't have to worry about like, do I have enough power for these things? Yeah, they just work with most, I would say probably all amplifiers, all, all DAC amplifiers, I think they would work with. They're, they're pretty sensitive from what I can gather from my listening. And I don't think that's necessarily true of all $800 headphones, especially planars. I think they need a little bit more grunt to get mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. would, you, would you say that's true, Shajana, in your experience? In my experience, but then I have not listened to the affordable uh, Hi-Fi Man, for example. I think they have something at 449. They it do, might be yeah. called the Aria or something like that, or Aria. Yeah. I have not investigated Hi-Fi Man ever since I got the the Susfaro. Right, so you have the big boys. The big boys, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, generally but, speaking, like I think a planar headphone needs a little bit more to get going, a bit more to wake yeah. up. And it is also fair to say that at least on the one portable device that I tried the 109s on, which is uh, a sound-aware Esther, it's a, mm. a DAP, like a digital audio player, mm. that the 109s were a little less efficient than the classics. Okay, that's interesting. They could be easily driven, but the classics were even more sensitive, which makes sense, mm. seeing that they will most likely be used more or maybe exclusively with mobile kit, and if it's affordable mobile kit, it won't have a very, very big headphone driver mm. built in. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 like, um, I like the idea of matching a headphone to a portable player rather than the other way around. 
because portable players generally are pretty weak on their output. I mean, there are there's, there are a couple of exceptions, like the Aslan Kern Can range. I think have a you know a fairly beefy output stage, but I don't know whether that impacts battery life more than the other models. But yeah, getting a lot of power on the go isn't easy. I mean, maybe the more sorry the uh, the Mojo Two from Cord. That's that would be my go to for any kind of portable action outside the house where I need plenty of current or yeah, go juice to, to wake up a headphone. But if you're willing to like walk around with that second box, I'm not. I'm not but anymore. If you like you no. say, you just take your your Apple or Samsung or whatever smartphone on the road and you plug into that. You mm. want a headphone that can be driven to satisfactory levels, and these Mezes can. And I think that is also must have been part of their design brief that this was a requirement. They had to be comfortable. They had to be good looking. They had to be light enough so that they are comfortable, and they had to be able to be driven by relatively mod modest or, mm. on the power level, modest gear. Mm. Now, what did you th think about the the price point that Meza have chosen for these, the, the 699 so 700 euro price point vis-a-vis -vis the 299 and 369 for the for the classic models? So I, I mean I think you I mean you you really nailed it well or you touched on a point that I wanted to kind of expand on where you said that people might look at the 99 classics and then look at the 109 and go well yeah Meze have doubled the price but for what and I think it would be very easy to see th you know that these two headphones share the same sort of genetics when it comes to design language and infer incorrectly that these are somehow related headphone models. You know, that, that basically the 109 Pro is a uh, 99 Classics on steroids or souped-up version. And this is absolutely not the case. I mean, the 109 Pro, from the way I understand it, is a completely new headphone. It's just that it inherits some of the kind of the design motifs that Antonio put on the 99 Classics so it could be seen that way, but I think it takes a closer look to see that that's not necessarily the case and, and certainly a closer listen because, yeah, I mean, next to the 109 Pro, the 99 Classics sound muddy, bloated in the bass. I mean, they're not because they're designed to be, they really are designed to be a fun listen. And I love them, and, and especially for those really thin recordings that were abundant on CD in the 80s. Mm -hmm. They are fantastic for fattening those up. Yeah. And I don't see, I don't know about the classical world, but I would imagine that some of the early classical transfers, you know, might have been a bit thin or a bit reedy. And I, I, I think this is why the, the 99 Classics would really work well with those. Whereas the 109 Pro is, isn't that kind of headphone. It's not, it doesn't sort of fatten anything up as far as I can tell. I mean, it is a little bit, yeah, a bit richer in the mid bass, but. It's just a, it's a, it's a small lift. So I, th I think it's more of a, um, a connoisseur's product. Like it's, it's for somebody who really is a discerning listener. Whereas I don't think the 99 classic is that kind of headphone necessarily. I mean, people only right. might think they are discerning listeners and they're going to be offended by my saying that, but that's not what I mean. It's just that I think as you, as you progress through better sounding headphone gear you realize you know the the qualities that come forth but if you've never experienced it you probably think well this is a discerning headphone of course it is because i've spent 400 euros on it 
And I'm not trying to rob anybody of their pleasure, but I'm just saying that this is another level above. And as you say, it's not a small step. It's a big step up from the 99 Classics or the 99 Neo. It, it's not, you know, I, I don't see these as, as re, you know, sonically related at all. Not at all. I like your, your use of the word a connoisseur's choice, a headphone. Hmm. And to that, I would simply add, that's not the prima donna. Right. Like there's, okay. there's some there's some voicings or tunings that sort of walk really close to the nerve. So as long as they don't hit the nerve, they're incredibly exciting. But then you put the wrong music on and they get strident or they mm. get overly lit up. They get forward or they have too much bite. And then you realize, OK, now my acquisition is dictating to me how to use it and what music I can listen to or for how long I can listen to. Mm. or how loud I can listen before I start to like wear out. And these don't do that. No. They don't have that prima donna factor built in. But they are for discerning listeners because they give you more. And if you have really first-rate, costly kit, and that we should remind people that spending a lot of money and getting really good quality is not necessarily always the same thing. But if you have good quality kit, this scales up. This will scale up where you don't feel like now that you have now you have to buy a three thousand dollar headphone because you just sort of improved the amplifier. I feel like these can really hang in. And to get back to the beginning, with all of that, they also are either the or one of the most comfortable headphones that I've ever worn. Mm. I love everything about them, and I love particularly the fact that. There's no physical adjustment that you have to make that could eventually sort of loosen up. And then you mm -hmm. have to sort of refine the, the, the click on the headband that is just the right click for you. Nothing can get out of shape here because the moment you put them on, they sort of, they fit snugly. The headband that retracts just lifts up as much as you need. And then you mm -hmm. take them off and presto. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I can't disagree with anything you've said. I think they're a, yeah, they're a, they're a great headphone. I mean, it's, it's it really is that simple. I mean, I I really I actually I don't have anything more to add, which is unusual for me. But <laughs> yeah, so is our is our work done, Shashan? Have, have we? Have I think we... I think so. I don't think we need to bore our audience by just repeating things we already said. No. Uh, and anyone who wants to know more. I see that uh, Meze Audio have updated the product page of the 109 more than they had when the headphone first bought. There's a lot of information on there now, a lot of pictures, a lot of breakdown into the technologies involved. So anyone who wants more tech talk, just head right on over to the Meze Audio website. Well, let's, let's wrap this one up now, and then we can talk about that offline, so to speak. So... um. Yeah, I'm, I'm signing off, Sajan. I guess you're signing off. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, John. My pleasure. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Six Moons' Srajan Iban. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston, and music came from Ben Pitt.